G'day, and welcome back to our podcast series on leadership. My name's Steve Mabs, and I'm the CEO of business and digital consultancy Essient. In this series, we talk with Australian business and community leaders to learn more about them and try to understand what makes them effective in their roles. Today, I'm joined by Ian Bailey, who shares how his very diverse background experience led him to become Managing Director of Kmart Australia. Welcome, Ian. Uh, Great to be here. I thought we'd start. Can you tell us a bit about Kmart and your role at Kmart and also more generally how it fits in with the larger uh, West Farmers Group? Yeah, absolutely. So Kmart's part of, as you say, part of West Farmers. There's there's a number of divisions within West Farmers. The the biggest one is Bunnings. Kmart Group is the second. And then we have Industrial and Office Works, so really the four. And each of us run quite independently. And it's one of the features of the West Farmers organisation is the concept of divisional autonomy, which which pretty much means that if you're a managing director of one of the divisions, you're, you're held fully accountable for the performance of that division, which, of course, we, we thoroughly enjoy. Um, and the benefit that we have of being part of West Farmers is they take care of a great deal of, of the corporate activity, investors, shareholders, treasury, and, and those type of uh, those type of activities, which which leaves us to be very focused on doing what we should do, which is you know deliver great services or great products to customers, um, look after our team, and deliver great returns to our shareholders. Now, in terms of Kmart itself or Kmart Group, there's three businesses which I currently look after. We've got Kmart itself, and it's the business I've been associated with the longest. Uh, we have Target, and we have Catch. Now, Catch is the newest addition to the fold, and we acquired Catch. Uh, in August of last year. So uh, we've had that business for a little over a year. And of course, sometimes timing works in your favor. And it's one of those businesses that has benefited <laughs> from uh, from COVID uh, with, the, with, the, with the significant shift towards online mm. um, through that period. Do you look after Kmart in New Zealand as well as an Australian New Zealand uh, responsibility? Yes, it is. So we've got, uh, we've got a number of stores in New Zealand. So for Kmart, we do. Catch also operates in New Zealand to a small scale. So that business also plays in that geography. Uh, we, we also have a, a, a quite a large number of people throughout Asia. So we have about 1,000 people now in Asia. Um, and one of the things that Kmart in particular does is source a lot of product direct from factories. And we have our own people in each of those countries managing that process. So the process of finding factories, managing orders, um, and managing quality um, through the uh, through the production process to ensure that when the products arrive in Australia and New Zealand, they're to the standard that we would like. One of the challenges for a lot of companies is trying to build a brand profile. I think it would be fair to say, I don't think there would be anyone in Australia who wouldn't know the Kmart brand. How challenging is it, given the profile of the brand, how challenging is it to kind of maintain that positive image and positive culture in the company as well? Yeah, it's, you know, we're very fortunate to have to have that awareness. Uh, believe it or not, there is 1% when we do when we do our research, 1% of people in Australia who don't know who we are. Uh, Where are they hiding, I wonder? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It was like, how do we not get to them? <laughs> but anyway... Uh, so there's a, so there's always a, there's always opportunity I guess uh, to find a few more customers. Yeah, and we get over ninety percent of Australians shop with us at some time during the year, which is quite an incredible statistic. Now that obviously that some, in some cases that may be only once, um, but uh, but we do get incredible reach, which uh, which we're very fortunate for, and and our brand has become really popular in recent times, uh, as and as you can see through social media and, and the amount of articles that get written. Um, often about the products that we sell, mm. uh, being the being the centre of attention, and things like Kmart hacks, 
is a term that you see many, many times now in, in social media. Yeah, I was reading about one of them earlier. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite incredible. And the, the, uh, the creativity of our customers, I think, is quite extraordinary as to what they do with some of the products. And I think because the products are priced at such a low level, it gives people permission to experiment and try in a way that you just couldn't if they were more expensive, because I don't think you could justify it as, a, you know, as an individual. Uh, but of course, as you say, that comes with an, a big accountability. Yeah, because we are we are in the spotlight, and and when we think of our business, we think of it as being right in the middle of the market, mm. which is again quite unusual compared to many many businesses. Many businesses look for a niche, their segment, their subset, where we say let's play right in the centre and play with everyone. Mm-hmm. And so when we when we think about our competitive set, we pretty much think of anybody that opens the door and serves customers, whether that's in store or online. Um, on the way through. And, and then, of course, we're trying to figure out, well, how do we do a really good job for our customers so that they choose us uh, more than they choose uh, they choose our competitors on the way through? And, and, of course, reputation and brand image becomes really important within that context because customers want to feel good about what they're doing. And one of the things we focus very heavily on in the Kmart business is this concept of no compromise. Mm. Um, and, and there's always a risk that if you operate in the value end of the spectrum, you know, value can be seen as cheap. Mm. And nobody wants to feel like they got a cheap but not good product or a cheap but not good experience. You know, that's a, it's the equivalent of a bitter aftertaste. Mm. And what people want to do is they want to feel smart. They want to feel good. They want to feel like they made a good choice. And so we've been working constantly to try and improve the, the fundamentals of our business so that customers can feel really good about it. And and so, of course, when it comes to brand, when it comes to our our um, our social media presence, we've generally tried to keep quite a low-key position. And we tried to let our customers talk about us rather than us get too vocal about it. And so if you look at our social media presence, we get a great deal of social media. The vast majority of it is not us. Mm. It's our customers talking. I remember seeing some incredible images as Victoria was coming out of lockdown. I think you opened your stores at midnight on the, the day that the lockdown restrictions uh, ended. And there were these huge lines of people at midnight waiting to get into your stores. Yes, it's. Uh, I guess, well, for those of us that have been in Melbourne, it, it, was, it was a long time. Uh, and, you know, something as exciting as going to Kmart suddenly felt very exciting. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess it shows how you know critical uh, your your stores and your brand is in the Australian retail space. Um, the yeah. fact that people are queuing up at midnight to get back in there after having been denied access for uh, what was it two or three months? Yeah, it's it, it's it was. I mean, it was a, it was a, a few hundred people across about four or five stores um, as as we got to midnight. So uh, so it wasn't actually that many, but oh, okay. and we get through we get through about uh, four million customers a week visit our stores. Um, yeah. So it's uh, so as you you, see, you you work those numbers out. There's always going to be a few who are super enthusiastic to uh, to get in, and it was wonderful for us. It was just great to be able to welcome customers back, and you know the store teams were just ecstatic to get back to you know a normality of seeing and serving customers. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about the culture of the organisation, Ian? How do you um, you know how would you describe that culture, and mm. um, how do you kind of select your people, and how do you kind of maintain, I guess, and reinforce that culture? Yeah. It's it's that's a it's an interesting question. I think the thing with retail and, and our business, so across across my the, the businesses I look after, we've got fifty thousand people, mm. and and if you if you ask those fifty thousand people, how many of them when they were young said, "When I grow up, I want to work in retail." Mm. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, fireman maybe, you know, yeah. you know, the astronaut, you know, builder. 
you know, there could be all sorts of, uh, of things that, uh, that kids come up with, the things they aspire to. And, it's, yeah. and retail generally isn't one of them. And, and, what, so, and what we are is we're, we're, we're a group of people who are, frankly, re- relatively normal, what we like to think we are, um, who find their way into retail and then, and then find a love for it. And that's it's true whether you're speaking to people who, who buy product or people who are in stores, you know, serving customers or people in distribution centers uh, moving product. Um, so it becomes, it becomes something that they, they discover and then they enjoy. And so our, our culture is what we, what we try to do is we try to tap into that. Uh, we, so we try to make it a very accessible culture. So this isn't a high octane, high, high IQ, you know, need, need to come out with one of the best universities to come and work for us. We're a business mm-hmm. for everyone. And, and so our mission is to make the environment suitable for everyone. And so culture became a lever for us in terms of performance, you know, really from the get-go. Because mm. When you've got that many people and you've got so many, so many uh, decisions being made by so many, you, you sort of want them to make the right choices. And you can try and put policies and processes and procedures and systems, you know, but all you, all you end up doing is building more and more bureaucracy and complexity into the business where if you can get your culture right, People just naturally make the right choice. Um, and so we invest a lot of energy in trying to create the right culture. Uh, it's a journey which we never get to the destination of mm. because with that many people, it's not a completely consistent culture in every location um, that we have throughout our network. So we think we've got a pretty good culture. We, we measure it um, systematically. and we. So we've How do you do that as a matter of interest? There's a, there's a third party that we use. Who, who runs a survey, which they run across multiple industries, including retail around the world. So we get good data, which benchmarks us relative to others on a, on a bunch of different parameters, which gives okay. a good sense of how our team members are feeling. And, and we, get, we get tens of thousands of responses when we, when we conduct those surveys. So we, it's pretty rich information that we get. Obviously, uh, an important aspect of culture is... Um you know, it starts at the top, the tone from the top, as they say. How, how would you describe your style of leadership in the organisation? I think, you know, I, just, just going back before I go to the start of leadership, I think culture is as much about from the bottom as it, as it is from the top. I, I, without doubt, mm. the, the leaders of the organisation have to, have to model the values. But the, yeah. the, the values are really employed by the team and the people. And, and, and giving the team the ability to hold others to account to the values is really important. If it's the, if it's just a job of, of leaders to hold people to account on values, it doesn't work. Yeah. So so one of the things we work very hard at is to democratize uh, doing the right thing, and, and giving people permission in our business to call out where someone's not, irrespective of their position. And, and I would absolutely expect, you know, my team to call me out if I if I if I misstepped or, you know, said the wrong thing, or mm. or did something that was actually contradictory to the core values of the business. And, and the reality is we're all people and none of us are perfect. And so we all, we all, we all make errors. Um, mm. The best thing you can do is give someone a, a, bit, a quick bit of feedback so that they, they understand what they've done and, and they can quickly adapt and course correct. So I think, it's a, I think it's the accountability of everybody in our organization to make sure the culture is right. Yeah, that's a great perspective, actually, uh, that sort of democratizing the, the, the vanguard, if you like, of, of culture uh, to everyone in the organization. I think the other, um, thing to, the other thing to on that one, Steve, is, you know, all of us as leaders of the organization, you know, we're caretakers. You know, we caretake, yeah. we caretake these positions. Now, clearly, clearly, we hopefully we add a little bit of value along the way. 
but uh, you know, so I'll be I'll be the leader of this business for a, for a number of years, and then somebody else will be after that. You don't want the you don't want the culture shifting wildly just because the the leader changes. Mm. What you want is you want the culture to be really good, really robust, and owned by the business. And when the leaders come in, hopefully they can just continue to enhance and build upon it. Yeah, that's good. You mentioned earlier that you know you you want uh, people to have a great experience, and and part of that not to be uh, just you know positioning at the value end of the market, but you know innovation being part of um, what you want associated with your brand. Um, and you mentioned the the Kmart hacks. What does innovation mean to Kmart, and how do you think you will continue to position and try and remain at the front of the competition in that in that uh, retail space that you're in? This is a fascinating topic because innovation is is at every level. We struggled with this as to how to articulate this in terms of our values. Uh, the way that we, we got to, we, with the help of our team, our team helped guide us on this. wasn't a, Again, it wasn't a leadership group that decided these words. It was the team. Yeah. The words we got to were reach higher. And uh, because we have, we have different types of innovation, um, in many ways there's a lot of innovation is continuous improvement. Uh, now, not always the most exciting term these days when you talk about transformation and some of those other elements. But when you've got 50,000 people, if each one of those mm. can find a minor improvement, that's a lot of value and that's a lot of improvement. And we want to celebrate those, those small improvements in our business that add up to a lot. And then, of course, you have the more transformational improvements. And, and the biggest transformation that we have currently is the digitization of our business and the, and the much greater application of technology and data. And I think like most businesses now, we, we're very much in that position of migrating from a, a, a more traditional operating model to one that's very much di- digitized and, and starting to, to really uh, accelerate some of the things that were previously very hard for us to tackle. So, you know, the obvious examples would be things like personalization. You know, historically, we produced a catalog and the catalog went to 5 million people and it landed in their letterboxes and they all got the same one. You know, obviously, there's the ability, there's the ability now for us to, to land emails to our customers which have products which, which we believe are going to be most relevant to them uh, based, upon, based yeah. upon what we know about them through their purchasing history. Uh, which is which when we get it right of course is really valuable to our customers because mm. we're not putting in front of them a bunch of products they're not interested in so uh, it sounds like everybody comes up with the ideas at, at Kmart how do they uh, how do they bubble their way up through all sorts of channels so there's you know there's times where we'll have you know effectively dedicated groups that are working through this and we've got a, we've got some projects running currently uh, which is being led by our by our sourcing team but we've we've created some agile teams uh, which have representation from across multiple functions, and we and we're looking at how do we yeah. uh, how do we evolve our supply chain, mm. and how do we develop greater flexibility in our supply chain so that we can adapt to shifting demand patterns um, on the way through. So in that particular example, we've got a group of people from across our business that we put into a team, and then given them some structure to go and innovate. Uh, for, to try and solve that question. Other times, it's just team members throughout our business going about their daily activity who figure something out, and then they call it out. Our, our leaders, you know, the, the zone managers, if they're in store, or the managers, if they're in the office, you know, mm-hmm. pick it up and then they, they magnify it. It's certainly, and this goes to the sort of people that we love to have in our organisation. Um, having a low ego for us and having curiosity—they're they're two really important points. Because this this mm. isn't a model where you can run mm. it from the top and, and pretend that you know everything. It's just too big, too complex, 
And so the only way it can really work is if you could tap into the subject matter expertise mm. of the people that do their jobs every day, because they're the ones that can see the opportunities in their in their sphere of what they do. You mentioned um, your uh, supply chains, and uh, I noticed one of the things that you personally worked on in the past was an ethical sourcing model. I mean, one of the big challenges for a lot of modern organisations is um, is to get greater visibility into their supply chains that that we're all trying to do, um, particularly, you know, given we're all concerned about modern slavery and and other things. Can you tell me a bit about that initiative that you that you uh, drove and um, and what was the outcome of that? Yeah, our journey our journey on this one. If I go back, in, if I go back in time, sorry about this. Go back about a decade. <laughs> When we were trying to figure out how to be lowest price, we we figured out actually we, we need to sell products directly from factories. It took us a while to get to that conclusion, but once we realised that, we we realised we needed to grow our ability to source product directly mm. uh, very quickly. At the time, at the time, we were sourcing in the order of you know two hundred million US a year of products. We now source over two billion US of product, so we've, we're tenfold bigger over the course of that decade. Now, the advantage that gives us is we, we communicate and we operate directly with the factories that provide our products. Yeah. You know, and, and I personally have visited, my, I, my guess would be I've probably visited three to 400 factories over that period. Oh, okay, wow. So, um, you know, prior to becoming the managing director, I was chief operating officer, of which I was sourcing was one of my accountabilities. Mm-hmm. So I would be in Asia every, every month or every second month. And, you know, pre-COVID, I would still be in every one of our major sourcing countries at least once a year, generally twice a year, visiting visiting our team and visit, visiting factories there. And so through that, you know, I got a really good education as to the, the really good things about the factories and some of the risks mm-hmm. that we need to manage. And, and we've worked very hard of, you know, first of all, starting with things like audit programs, uh, which is just going in and monitoring and checking, but but mm-hmm. that's that has its limitations, as I think everyone would understand. Whoever does an audit of anything, mm-hmm. um, and so we then started working with other providers and other players. So we, with people like ILO, BetterWorks, um, and others, where that we start working much more proactively with the factories to really start helping them improve their internal processes, so that they get better outcomes for their factory workers as well as good economic outcomes. And through that, we get we feel like we're making a much greater contribution than than merely trying to hold people to an audit standard. No, that's a great uh, great initiative, and um, uh, and obviously one that a lot of people are focused on uh, at the moment. A lot of businesses are focused on, so it's great uh, to see what you're doing there. It's actually an advantage for us because we do see the factories direct. Mm. Now we get a lot of attention because we source a lot of product, and you know we import incredible volumes of products a year. So, I mean, we sell approximately a billion items in Kmart alone over the course of a year. Um, but, of course, so many other retailers effectively do the same thing, but they do it through a brand. Yeah. And they don't have, they don't have that line of sight to the factory. So, so, when, so at least when, when I get asked the question that you just asked me, I can visualize the factories, I can visualize the processes, I can visualize where the risks are because I've sat there with the owners of those factories and we've we've experienced the good and the bad on the way through and we've learned and we've improved through that process. And, and that's the advantage I think we have is that transparency and that access that gives us that insight. Yeah, that's good, good program. Ian, what do you see as the biggest challenges going forward? You obviously look after uh, Kmart, Target and uh, Catch. Um, do you see greater synergies between the, the different organisations or the different brands or um, 
I noticed you've got some uh, changes going on with uh, Kmart Hub. Now, yeah. K-Hub, I think it's called. Um, yes. Yeah, what, so what are you working on at the moment and what are the biggest challenges for you going forward? Without doubt, the greatest challenge is keeping up with our customers. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think this has been true for a long while, that customers were evolving quickly and retail businesses are not. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's the perfect uh, the perfect recipe for disruption. Mm. And, uh, and, and you see, you've seen how successful something like Amazon has been globally. Uh, with their with their business model, or if you look in uh, if you look in China, Alibaba has done an incredible job in the way that they've developed their uh, their uh, their business through that period. And and of course, COVID has now introduced you know a, a very significant change, which I think has impacted us in in many ways, which we yet to fully understand. Um, my my personal view is I don't think we will go back to normal. No, I agree with that. Yeah, I think we've we've changed, haven't we? <laughs> Exactly. Well, what, so there'll be well, there'll be a new normal. What is that new normal, and what does that mean for what customers and people want in their lives? And if you look at you know some of the macro trends, you'd say you know people don't really want to commute into a CBD anymore, mm. <laughs> or if they do, they don't want to do it quite so often. And so, well, how does that start playing out in the way that they you know they they furnish their homes? How does it play out in the way they interact with their families and their friends and the what does that mean for the things that they need to enjoy their lives? And then how do we how do we play a role in that that feels like we're doing 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 a good job for them? So, so I think the greatest thing that's on our minds is is really making sure we're really understanding what's going on in our customers' lives and ensuring that we're moving and adapting at at a fast enough pace to uh, to be able to service them. And the challenge, I guess, whenever you get to a, a, a business of scale, is you can get a little in, internally focused. Mm. And you can start to think about what's good and easy for the business to do versus what's right for customers, and and that's the that's the challenge I think we're constantly grappling with as we as we navigate through. Thanks, Ian. Can we um, sort of shift gears a bit now? I wanted to sort of talk a bit more about you personally and um, and your background. Uh, I think you mentioned that you came to Australia many years ago. Um, can you tell us uh, where you grew up and and where you went to school and yeah, what your what your fondest memories of childhood were? Yeah, I was uh, I was born in London in uh, in the UK and uh, lived there lived there for eighteen years. Uh, my my mum and dad were uh, yeah were, were, were wonderful. They loved to renovate houses. We, you yeah. know, we didn't we didn't come from a family with uh, with a lot of money. So the way that they tried to make a little bit of money was to buy a house that was run down, make yeah. it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Got, so I think that I think that developed my nomadic tendencies because I have moved around quite a bit in my life until until probably the last uh, last 10 15 years where I've been quite stable in Melbourne um, what, what did I love when I grew up I, I love sport yeah I was ter- I wasn't very academically good at school I, I left school at 16 actually and I played tennis for a couple of years tried to try to make my career there that um, it was a lot of fun but not very um, not very financially rewarding. <laughs> As a tennis pro, you were a tennis pro. As a tennis pro, but uh, well, yeah. yes, not. I don't. Know, I don't think I could even call myself that because it was more like <laughs> I, was, I was a teenager running around playing a few tennis tournaments. <laughs> An aspirant <laughs> would, be, would, be, would be a better description. Um, and of course, that didn't. That, that wasn't going to work out. And uh, but I managed to study. I managed to continue studying in evening classes, even though I wasn't at school. And I, and I did get to uni. Uh, I ended up going. Ended up going to university in Manchester, and I studied civil engineering. Yeah. Uh, 
not because I really wanted to be a civil engineer, maybe because I didn't know what else to do and my brother had done engineering, so I sort of followed <laughs> on. <laughs> so I wish I could tell you that it's past the plan at play here, but you can tell what was happening. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I lived in Manchester for a few years and uh, about my mid-20s, I, I, got, I got really itchy feet. Um, I finished that, so I should say I went on and, and I joined an accounting firm in Manchester after that and worked there for five years. And I got itchy feet, wanted to go and see if there was somewhere else in the world I wanted to live. And uh, for anybody who is who is British who's listening to this, I'm going to apologise up front. I just found living in England just so depressing. You know, it just it just felt the the atmosphere just felt heavy for me for some reason. And mm-hmm. you know, I just felt like there wasn't a, there wasn't ambition and freedom and and I don't know. I, I, and then I, I I went travelling around the world looking for somewhere else to live on, a, on basically on a, an excuse to take a year off and backpack. <laughs> seems to be the thing to do <laughs> yeah and I, loved, and I loved it of course i mean i got i went to you know, went to the us and went to canada and obviously came to australia and new zealand and, and lots of countries through asia as well on the way through and had a wonderful time but didn't find that magic place yeah and then a few years a few years later on i'll jump forward because i'll be here all day otherwise and everyone will fall asleep <laughs> but uh a few, a few years later i was working for a, a business in uh, in the uk in the uk and they had a they had a small office in us in Melbourne, yeah. and uh, somehow somehow I was on the leadership team of this business, running a consulting group, and uh, and, I, and I said at the end of one of the leadership meetings to the managing director, that business in Australia isn't going very well. You know, how about I go over there and you know look after it for you? Anyway, two weeks later, I was here. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> which was in, which was in the mid nineties. The business was a disaster. I, I ended up closing it down. My boss got yeah. fired, and I also got fired because I was in the wrong country at the wrong time. Yeah. Um, but I, but I fell in love with Melbourne, yeah. and, and and the lifestyle, and and so I went back to the UK, got permanent residency, and came out here, um, yeah, in the late nineties, and been in Melbourne ever since. Is that when you started working for West Farmers? Um, I started working for Coles Group, as it was, yeah. in 2002. So I joined Officeworks as their general manager of finance. Yeah. You know, you, you do get lucky in life sometimes. I was working for PricewaterhouseCoopers in, in one of their consulting divisions um, at the time. And, uh, and one of the guys I was working with, his wife was a recruitment agent who just was just so happened was looking after the recruitment of that role. And uh, through that, I got the interview and somehow, somehow got into the, the job. And that was my introduction into retail because prior to that, I'd never been in retail at all. I'd been in you know, technology businesses, healthcare, um, financial consulting. Um, and, and I guess if you look through my career, what did I have prior to that point? I had, I had ridiculous amounts of variety because I changed jobs. You did. Absolutely. I was just going to say the same thing. I mean, trained as an engineer, accounting, consulting, uh, yeah, yeah. I, did, I was in sales for a while, yeah, um, as well on the way through. And it's funny you know, when you go through early, you go through earlier in your career. It's a liability because you people look at your CV and they say, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't hold a job down. Yeah. And I remember going for a few jobs and, I, and they just said, you know, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Come back when you figure out what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was a, I had this, I had this, the, 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 I got, you know, I think I got lucky a couple of times in my working life and prior, just one of the jobs prior to the one I've just mentioned or, or moving out here. Uh, I was, I was working for a, a technology company called SHL System House, which was part of MCI, if you remember that name from the US, which yeah. was a big telco. Yeah. And it was, this was a technology arm of their business. I was working for them in London. I, I was, I was in their sales team working on outsourcing sales. 
and the CFO left, and uh, you know, and somehow I got the CFO job for the for the for, uh, for the for the for the region. Yeah. And uh, and it surprised me when I got it because there was a really good financial controller who was at least ten years older than me with way more experience. But he was a financial controller who'd only ever done financial control, and they wanted a CFO who understood the business. Mm. And it was that point I realised the value of variety. If you're if you're looking for more general management positions, um, so it's it's a risk you take when you go through your earlier career because you change a lot and a lot of people won't value it. But at some point later on, that that variety becomes um, a true currency and highly valuable. Yeah, that's that's a that's really good advice actually for young people. I, I feel that you've just given there um, because obviously if you stick to one sort of area, you're going to probably advance your career in that area. But uh, in terms of what's going to serve you best later on in your career, it's probably a bit more variety, which is possibly easier to get when you're a bit younger. You bring all that to the table now, obviously, in your current role. Um, that that enormous variety of experience that you've had over the years um, would give you uh, a lot of really useful perspectives, I would imagine. Yeah, I think I think it. I think I, th- I do think it helps because you, you know, because you, and also you're never an expert. Yeah, it's, it comes yeah. back to one of those earlier comments. The problem with being an expert is that you feel obliged to give the answer to questions, and yeah. much yeah. much better that you create the environment for the people who really know to answer mm. the questions to a better to a better standard. Yeah, absolutely. Ian, did you have any uh, role models growing up that influenced you uh, during the formative years of your career or over over the years? Yes, I did. I did. I've I, I've I was very fortunate. I've worked for. A number of really, really interesting senior leaders over the years of different skills and capabilities. Um, I wouldn't say there's one person yeah. that I'd say you know I've, I've modelled myself on them. I think that I figured out on the way through quite early on is that the, the people who are really strong are they're just really great interpretations of themselves. Hmm. But but you can always add to who you are. And so I you know I, I remember the one of the guys I was working for when I was in the UK. He was a Canadian. Canadian guy, name of Tom Cronin, and uh, you know, just a, he just had a really nice, thoughtful style about him. You know, he was always calm. You know, when I was when when he, when I saw him in operation, he just seemed to have the ability just to think things through and just cut to the most important point really fast. So he was a he was a great example for me of somebody who used logic, uh, you know, and rationale, almost like a. Um, a surgeon would right <laughs> conducting mm-hmm. an operation so it was uh, he was uh, so he was interesting and then of course you meet other people who use whose different skills around whether it's emotions or or, or tapping into you know what really motivates people um, on the way through and you see how they go about their communication and you see the way they talk and the way that they move and they act and you start realizing actually there's a there's other ways to convince people how to do things here but, but beyond just trying to convince them of the logical thing to do. You know, if you, if you can tap into people's beliefs, I'm not talking about religious beliefs here, I'm talking about mm. their, their underlying mm. beliefs. Around, beliefs. Correct. Yeah. Um, if you can tap into those and if you can connect with those, then that's a much more powerful connection than logic can ever give. And, and the motivation that comes from that can be so strong. So I've, so I've, I've pretty much lo- you know, watched all the leaders that I've worked with, whether, whether it's for or worked with them as peers, and, and where I've seen somebody deliver extraordinary outcomes, I've always looked and said, what, how, do, how did they go about that? What did they do? And what's my version of that? Mm. So that I'm, I'm constantly on the lookout to see what other skills I could add to the kit bag. And, 
Mm. Because if, if I go to one of my really core beliefs, my core belief is we should be learning at a ridiculous rate all the time. Mm. And if I say there's one thing that's constant through my career, it's been, you know, as soon as the learning curve started to shallow, then I've generally, I've generally moved and changed roles to maintain that learning curve. What, what do you find is the most difficult part about being a leader in the roles that you've had over the years? I think pace is, is difficult. You know, my, my, my view is my job is to help make the people around me as, 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 as good as they can possibly be. So a lot of the time I see myself as coach for my leadership team. Hopefully they would agree <laughs> on, the way, on the way through. But obviously there's times you've got to set direction and you've got to make calls. Um, but, but the vast majority of what I do is try and, is try and coach. Through that, yeah. though, what I'm trying to figure out is, is, the, is the pressure at the right level? Yeah. And, and if you think about, if I give you a strange analogy, if you think about a, you know, a, a car driving down a straight open road, and uh, let's make the assumption there's no speed limits wherever we are here, you can just put your foot down as hard as you like, right? Because yeah. it just go as fast as you want. As soon as you hit windy roads, you've got to, you've got to be a bit more subtle in, in how much you use the brake and how much you use the accelerator. And yeah. I, think, I think leadership is winding roads. Yeah. And there's times when, you, as a leader, you've got to be saying to the organisation, "Go faster, yep. put your foot down." There's times when the when the, the the business is under so much stress because of could be something that's going on externally, could be something that's going on internally, that you need to say, "Slow down." And I, I think that the challenge is getting that balance right. Have you faced any um, challenges throughout your career that? as a leader you thought were insurmountable or were, were really going to sort of take you to the limit of, of what you could achieve? I think it happens. I think it happens all the time. Yeah. Because, you know, I think for all of us, in, in whether we were leaders or whether we're, whether we're leading teams or whether we're leading ourselves, you know, there's how many times a day do you, do you stumble across something? You say, and, and if you're really honest with yourself, you say, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> and, and, and of course as the leader of an organisation the stuff that the organisation doesn't know how to do eventually finds its way to your doorstep yes yeah. and and most of the time it's not about trying to solve it it's trying to figure out who the hell can I find <laughs> yeah how are we going to solve it yeah. <laughs> who knows who we have who can tackle this question yeah <laughs> and how we solve it and and I think most of the time it's not about feeling like, yes, I've got an answer, I don't. It's feeling like you've got a pathway to solve. And and and, uh, and where you stress is when you don't feel like you've got a pathway. Uh, and that's so they're the points that I worry. And that's when that's when again you, you go looking for other other people's help. So if I'm if I'm drawing a blank as to how we tackle something, you know, I've just got to start speaking to other people, whether they're inside the organisation or outside just to try and find how other people have tackled similar situations and find a way to navigate the way through. And sooner or later, you find it. Um, just got to be persistent and, uh, and just got to keep, keep that optimism that there will be a solution. In terms of some of the uh, sort of social causes that are on everyone's mind at the moment, is, uh, are you uh, at Kmart, are you tackling any of those? Um, uh, diversity, climate change? Uh, anything? Or you, you, we talked a little bit earlier about modern slavery, but anything else that's uh, or, or any of those that are, are sort of big on the agenda? Yeah, there's there's a number of them, and I, I think the role of companies is changing. 
I think the days of it just being an economic enterprise that, that, that also creates you know good careers for people has changed. And, and once you hit a certain scale, I think there's now an expectation that there's a there's a, a material contribution to society. And I think we have a real accountability for that. And so I think on something like climate change, you know, it's been a struggle, I think, for governments around the world to make progress and get traction um, on that. And I think increasingly it's it's viewed as corporates have have the, the, the capacity mm-hmm. um, and the ability to enact that change through the through the through the, the economic uh, I guess power that we have and, mm-hmm. and so, so we're working hard on that so we, we've got a number of things around you know, sustainability that we're working on whether it's you know things like plastics and trying to reduce the number of plastics that are out there. So we've, we've yeah. done things like remove single-use plastics from our stores. So things like, you know, plastic knives and forks that you might use at a picnic, you know, that which, which you know, they get used once, they get thrown away, then they don't degrade. We've, mm. we've moved to, you know, other products now, which you can still buy disposable knives and forks, but they're products that will, will naturally degrade, you know, in a relatively short period of time. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, we're looking at things like recycled polyester, uh, which is still at the small end of the spectrum at the moment, but we think by 2025 um, we should have target 100% there. We've got Kmart down for 2030, but we'd, we would like to think that, that that date will come forward as the technology continues to evolve that can find ways to develop more recycled polyester products. We've done, done some work to move all of our cotton to BCI cotton, so we've got sustainable cotton on the way through. So increasingly we're finding really smart ways to get really good sustainable outcomes without increasing mm. costs. And I think this is the this is the this is the trick for, for businesses that operate where we do at the value end of the spectrum. You, you know, putting putting the prices up to make a product more sustainable will just mean we go out of business. Mm. So, so therefore we have to find a solution that works. It's a smarter um, way of doing it, yeah. Outside of, outside of that We've, um, we've got a lot of things locally that we're working on. So we've done some really good stuff with people with disabilities. Um, and, you know, we've, we've, we launched some products um, recently of disabled dolls or, or people, yeah, dolls with dolls with disabilities is probably the better mm. language. And they have been extraordinarily popular. Mm. Um, and, it, and, it, and we get such wonderful stories coming back from some of our customers. And, and you know, it's just you know, incredible how much difference it makes to some of the kids that are out there. When they when they can buy a doll that's like them, yeah, no, that's that's beautiful. That's a great initiative. I'm really pleased to hear you doing that. And then the, the last one I'd probably touch on is the work we're doing with uh, the Aboriginal and Torres, uh, Torres Strait Islanders. So uh, yeah. we know that employment, if we can if we can create more employment for that community, that will be the greatest help that we can do. Um, mm. So with uh, with the aid of West Farmers and uh, and also some help from the government, we've been putting in recruitment programs across the country and. And we, we're doing really well at, at recruiting and, more importantly, retaining increasingly large numbers of, uh, of the Aboriginal population uh, within our store population, um, which, of course, is wonderful, right, because our stores are all the way through the country in all sorts of locations, whether it's the major cities or regional towns. And so creating creating jobs for people in in regional locations or in, or in metro, wherever they are, is, is a really good opportunity for us to contribute to, uh, to that community. Absolutely. You're in an ideal position to be able to do it, aren't you? No, that's great. Really glad to hear uh, all those um, social causes and and purposes that you're uh, focused on there, Ian. Can I just um, wind back to uh, March this year uh, when, you know, we all thought economically the world was going to end? Um, 
Can you tell us uh, what went through your mind and how did you deal with uh, the new information that was coming in daily, almost hourly, really, uh, in terms of how COVID-19 was going to affect all of us um, and, and in particular as a, as a leader of an organisation of 50,000 people? How did, how did you uh, deal with that and, and how did you respond? Yeah, it's been an extraordinary year, probably one of the most challenging years I think we've experienced it's a, it's a really good example of when, when COVID hit, all of a sudden the world's changed so dramatically for, the, for our businesses and the way they operated. It's, it's like they're operating well outside of their known parameters. Mm. And it's like a machine operating outside of its tolerances. Suddenly the machine doesn't work anymore. And if, if you've suddenly got 50,000 people who don't know what to do, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's, a, it's a problem. And so we, we very quickly put in three core principles, um, which, we, which we wanted the team to focus on. The first one, which is going to sound strange, is the first one is we're there to serve customers. Yeah. And, and we, we made this one of our core, it was, it was the number one principle because there was a lot of debate as to should our stores remain open or not. Mm. And there was quite, you know, and, there was in, and quite rightly, some of our team members said, we think we should close because there's a risk of us staying open. Yeah, that uh, we might contract, uh, we might contract COVID, and mm. it was like we hear you, but you know we're a retail business, and our job is to serve customers, and customers actually need the products that we sell, mm. um, and and that was being proven as we've gone through this period of time, and so so somehow we've got to figure out how to be there for them. So the first one was be there for customers, and that just really, and I think everyone grasped that within our organisation, and it, it just closed down that whole debate of should we, shouldn't we open, and then we just decided under all scenarios we'll be open as long as we were allowed to by whoever the government was in whatever the jurisdiction was. Mm. The second thing is we will, we will do everything in our power to ensure our customers and our team members are safe. And we, uh, we, we gave um, accountability to some of our operations team to work up in-store processes. This is before COVID safe plans were developed by the government. As a, as a principle, we effectively were working on that from the get-go. And we came up with social distancing measures. We came up with, you know, cleaning cleaning processes. We came up with rostering, rostering approaches. And when I say we came up, the store teams came up with it themselves. And they came up with most of that in about five days. And uh, yeah. it's, it's like having an agile squad in a store with, with black tape marking floors. So we didn't. This, this isn't beautiful decals and all the other mm. stuff that's, that's, that's been delivered since. This was you know, very raw exercises just to really figure out how to do stuff. Mm. And, uh, and so we got, we got traction really fast. And I think the team started to get a sense of, yeah, actually they're here to support us. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, over time we did things like paying our team members when, they, when we were, on, were unable to work. So or we, 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 didn't, we didn't tap into government money within Australia for JobKeeper. And, and when we, even, even throughout those Melbourne lockdowns, the, the entire team continued to be paid and employed. Oh, wow. Um, through that period. So this is this whole thing about we'll look after the team. Mm. And then the third one was we'll, we'll focus on ensuring that we're making the right decisions for the long term. Mm. So uh, we're not going to get so focused on the here and now that we start losing sight of the fact our business needs to evolve at a faster rate. And I'd say if I was a common theme when I've spoken to CEOs across different industries is that the strategic agendas have generally accelerated through mm. this period of time versus decelerated. And I think, and this comes back to the customers are changing so quickly, unless you evolve your, your proposition really quickly at the moment, you know, you could survive COVID but not survive the, 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 the post-COVID world. 
because you're, mm. you're suddenly out of touch with where customers are. So they were the, they were the three principles that we applied. And, and through that, we were able to push a lot of decision-making back down into the business so that we could make fast, quick, and good and consistent decisions um, on the way through. I, I wish I could say it was all simple and plain sailing on the way through, but those, those three mm. things helped us enormously to, to make it easier than it would otherwise have been. No, that's great. And how have you sort of had to change the way you work personally? Obviously, being in Melbourne, you've been locked down for part of that period, um, and you're not you're not doing um, monthly trips overseas that you mentioned earlier that you were doing in the past. Um, so it's, I imagine, running the organisation fairly remotely uh, for some time now. So what does what does a typical day look like for you now? Yeah, well, I've actually slept in my own bed every night since March. <laughs> oh, that's a good thing. <laughs> yes, I, I, don't, I don't. I wouldn't normally do more than about. Well, normally about ten days before the next trip comes up would be a long stint. Um, yeah. So that's that's been quite extraordinary. No jet lag. That's, yeah. another, that's another one, which is uh, you know you're on fire. <laughs> yes, uh, it's funny, isn't it? The things that you, uh, you you take for granted or you get used to. But so, so I quite enjoyed that. Um, I'm, I'm currently sat in in a tiny little desk in my bedroom because it's the quietest part of the house. When, uh, when the kids were homeschooling and I probably just haven't gone back down, now they've gone back to school. So my, most of my days at the moment until stores reopened was, was doing what we're doing now, which is either speaking on a, on a phone or on a video call and, um, and, and connecting with people. And, you know, a large part of my job is connecting with people. And if I can't do it physically, I've got to find another way of doing it. So, so video and voice is the next best thing. In... Um Obviously, you've had uh, fairly responsible positions over the years and uh, a lot of uh, pressure on you in the roles that you've had. How do you unwind and recharge? What, what do you like to do in your spare time, for example? Do you have any, do you have any hobbies that you pursue? Yeah, I do. I do. And uh, again, this is, uh, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. And the, the COVID cloud for me is I've, I've been able to get into a routine yep. because of that no travel thing. I've, so I've been... Um, I've been able to go to uh, – so I've, I've got myself a personal trainer, which is the first time I've ever done that, mm-hmm. which I've been using pretty much since April. And uh, I've been bike riding very frequently, so I'm doing exercise most days. Now that we can get back out again, playing tennis again uh, on the weekends. Yeah. And uh, and if it's ever not windy, I'll get the paddle board out and go for a paddle on the, paddle on the bay. So uh, they're, the things I, they're the things I like to do. I, I, I'm generally quite active. Yeah, I got the impression. Uh, you said they're all sporting-related activities, and you yeah, mentioned and, earlier that you've always loved sports. Yeah, and and, and we've um, we've had a couple of nice little routines at home as well. So we've we have the eight o'clock TV slot. So we watch, you know, there's uh, my, my younger daughter, uh, my wife, and myself. The three of us will always sit down and we'll watch it. We'll watch a show together, and we've watched all sorts of stuff. You know, from you know, from comedies through to political dramas, <laughs> through to through, I don't know, through to all sorts of all sorts of weird things. So, but it's been a quite a nice experience just doing that for that hour each day, where we all come together and connect, which is quite nice. Yeah, fantastic. What uh, what advice would you give to future leaders who are in the formative stages of their career, based on what you've learned over the years? Yeah. Number one, do something you love. I made I made that mistake early on. I didn't. I did. I did jobs I hated. And you know, you know, you know, it is bad when you start getting to Sunday morning and you start getting depressed because Monday's coming. That's not mm-hmm. <laughs> that's for anyone for anyone out there. That's a sign that you're in the wrong job. And uh, I hadn't really grasped that. It sounds, it sounds so obvious, some of this stuff, doesn't it? But you know, sometimes it takes a while for it to sink in. And then, and then when I discovered actually, there's jobs I like doing. Life got a whole lot better. 
Yeah. Uh, so I, my number one tip, do something you love doing because uh, life's just more fun. Uh, that, that helps enormously. And, yeah, I, I, I love this idea of curiosity and this, 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 this idea that you just should be learning so fast. You know, so I'm, you know, I'm in my 50s now, so I'm not, I'm not a teenager anymore. And mm. I don't say my learning curve is as steep as it has ever been. Yep. Because yeah. wow. uh, because there's so much to figure out. <laughs> yeah, every day's a school day, isn't it? <laughs> and you know, every day, every day, every day, you're sitting there, and, and it kills me sometimes when I see people that say, you know, I am who I am, and, yeah. and it's just like, wow, that's it, finished. <laughs> finished masterpiece. <laughs> it's like, wow, I hope I never get, I hope I never get to that point. But, yeah. uh, you know, maybe I will. So maybe the other day I'll just say I've had enough. I'm done. I'm, I am what I am. But uh, but I, I think I think this idea of you know of striving 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 to find a way to add another bit to your kit bag that can just make you be a little bit better. I think is a, is a wonderful place to go. And if there's something that you really want, you know, if you want to be a, you know if there's a, if you want to be a builder, or you know just figure out how to be a great builder. If you want to be uh, if you want to be a chef, figure out how to be a great chef. Yeah. and go and learn all the things that go along with it. If you want to run a company like, you know, like the managing director, well, get into get into the trading parts of the business yeah. where you can demonstrate where you can demonstrate the value and uh, and and do a damn good job. <laughs> and, then, and then and then through that, you know, you generally that's how you get promoted, isn't it? As you go through, you do you do well at one job, and they'll give you something more difficult. Yeah, that's it. As one of my other guests said, you know, just try and find as many doors as possible because at some stage one of them is going to open and there'll be an opportunity there. So, that's it. That, just on that point, to pick up on it, it's this idea of the, the door opens, the window opens is one that I, I like the idea of. I've mentioned a couple yeah. of times that I've been lucky and I have. And, you know, I think for anybody who's reached a senior position to say they haven't been lucky will be unlikely. Yeah. However, however, luck arrives, you've got to take advantage of it. Uh, and if you think if you think of it, walking past an open door, and stepping through that door that is is uncertainty. Yeah. And there's risk. If you don't step through the door, you're never going to get there. Yeah. And that's and that's the, and you see you see you see it a lot. You see people have some incredible opportunities and they don't step through the door. And uh, I think this is one of the things for all of us as we go through our lives is just trying to figure out when's the door open, and when have I re- when is there a choice here that's to step through? And if I step through it, my life's different. If you had a do-over, Ian, uh, of your life, is there anything you would have done differently? I don't think so. I don't think so because it's it's the, it's the it's the errors that you make that that, uh, that make who you are. Yeah. And so I think if I hadn't have done some of the stupid things that I did, I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't have learned from it. And and it probably wouldn't have helped me, you know, do you know do the job that I do today or hopefully be the, the better husband that I am today or the better father. Yeah. Because it's, you know, if you, if you get things right all the time, I don't know about you, I don't really learn that much if you get it right. It's when you, it's when you stuff it up that you really have the moment of truth of figuring out how to do things better. What do you, uh, what do you hope your legacy will be? Yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a few things. I, I, would, I would love for some of the people that I work with to go on to bigger and better things. So I'd, I'd love to see. It's, it's always it's always wonderful to see people that you've you've been working with, you know, to keep taking bigger and bigger steps in their careers. And so I'd love to see some of those people go on to really great things as we go forward. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd I'd love to see the Kmart business continue its journey, and and for the next for the next person, you know, hopefully not soon. 
<laughs> who, inherits, who inherits my role, um, for, for them to be in a position where they can take something that's in a wonderful, wonderful position that's, that's as loved, if not more loved by customers than it is today, and that they can then find a way to take it to the next level. Um, I think if we can continue to do what we do for customers, which is make products affordable, um, I think that's, it's, it sounds such a simple thing, but I've been gobsmacked at the, at the difference it makes to people's lives. We have, so we have this, this purpose in our business of making everyday living brighter. And, and we, we distilled those words out of uh, the reactions we had to customers, of which there was two. There's, there's a very logical reaction, which is I, I, don't have all the, I don't have as much money as I need to, to live my life. And so if I can save some money on the basic things, that really helps me. And it helps me because I can either buy better food for my family or I can pay a bit of my debt down or I can maybe have a holiday that I couldn't afford. It's quite a rational, um, it's quite a rational reason. And yeah. then and there's the other side of it, which is the emotional one, which is, which is giving people the ability to do things they couldn't previously do. Yeah. So if you think about cushions, using a silly example, you know, if you go to a specialist home, homeware stores, they might have some beautiful cushions and they're, they're, let's say they're $50 each. Well, if you buy four of them, that's 200 bucks. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a serious, that's a serious decision there, if you, particularly if you get it wrong. Yeah. Whereas, you know, for us, they're 10. And so yeah. suddenly, suddenly 40 bucks gives people permission. And, yeah. and, you know, we get some incredible stories of people who have, you know, made up their houses and, you know, maybe they're you know maybe they're a single parent and they've got uh, they've got a number of kids, but they're able to give one of their kids' bedrooms a makeover, and they can do it for sixty bucks. Mm. And and that's those things really change people's uh, you know appreciation of what we do for them, and it's it's a very strong emotional connection when we do that. Yeah, I think that purpose is something your uh, your customers could relate to as well if if you ask them. Ian, look, uh, thank you. It's been fascinating talking to you and I really appreciate your time and, and the insights that you've shared and the perspectives uh, on your career and on leadership. Uh, I wanted to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today and wish you and Kmart all the very best for the future. It's been my, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me along. Cheers. My guest today was Ian Bailey, Managing Director of Kmart Australia. Please join us again next time when we further explore dimensions of leadership through the experience of another of Australia's top organisational leaders. All the best.